Oh God in heaven, as we look now at the life of Jeremiah, as we study your call upon his life, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be here in this room. That your angels would fill this place that the devil would have no hold here, not in this building, not in our hearts, not in our lives. We ask, O God, that you encourage us because we are living in a world of chaos. We ask, O God, that like Jeremiah, you help us to be fortified against the world on behalf of you, preaching a message of repentance, a message of hope. Guide us now, I pray, in your name. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer hated war. As a twin to his sister Sabine and the third youngest of eight siblings, he spent much of his childhood in the company of his younger sisters. He was very chivalrous and protective. At the age of six, he saw a dragonfly hovering over the water near his mother, and he said, Look, there is a creature over the water, but don't worry, mother, I will protect you. As a pastor and a theologian, he was preoccupied with learning how to follow Christ. Then Hitler came into power in 1933. The 1930s were a very troubling time for Bonhoeffer as he watched his native Germany being consumed by Nazism. He, along with other Christians, organized the Confessing Church, pledging their allegiance to Christ alone. But they were going against the flow. In 1934, Bonhoeffer preached a sermon on the prophet Jeremiah, which reflected many of his own fears. He described Jeremiah as being hunted by God, prisoner to the path that God had prescribed for him. And this is a quote now. It is the path of the man whom God will not let go, who will never be rid of God. There's a wonderful uh, biography on Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. It's called uh, Preacher, no, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And um, he talks about this, this sermon that Bonhoeffer gives, and I, I just... Some of these quotes are, are fabulous. He said that the, the congregation was really stunned when he was preaching on Jeremiah because it's not a common thing for people to preach on. Um, and these are some of the, the quotes from Bonhoeffer. So he says, The path, that is, of Jeremiah, will lead right down into the deepest situation of human powerlessness. The follower becomes a laughingstock, scorned and taken for a fool, but a fool who is extremely dangerous to people's peace and comfort, so that he or she must be beaten, locked up, tortured, if not put to death right away. That is exactly what became of this man, Jeremiah, because he could not get away from God. Eric Metaxas writes, he says, If Bonhoeffer wanted to ensure that his congregation would never dream of following God too closely, this sermon was just the ticket. But Bonhoeffer keeps going. I mean, he's just, he's just dragging his congregation down into the depths of despair here. He says, Jeremiah was just as much flesh and blood as we are, a human being like ourselves. He felt the pain of being continually humiliated and mocked of the violence and brutality others used against him. Jeremiah was abraded as a disturber of the peace, an enemy of the people, just like all those throughout the ages until the present day who have been possessed and seized by God, for whom God had become too strong, How gladly would he have shouted, peace and heil with the rest. He's speaking again, see, during, this is right in the middle of Nazi Germany. The triumphal procession of truth and justice, the triumphal procession of God and his scriptures through the world, drags in the wake of the chariot of victory a train of prisoners in chains. He's thinking of of believers as these prisoners that are kept by God, you know, captured um, by this this message and by this uh, calling to, uh, to be prophets to the world. 
May he at at the last bind us to his triumphal carriage so that although in bonds oppressed, we may participate in his victory. This is a very strange uh, sermon on Jeremiah, but the reason why Jeremiah preaches this is because he identifies so closely with the prophet. He feels like he is, is being called by God to be this prisoner for him, to be this prophet, to go against the flow, to resist the, the Nazi ideology. And, and the Christian theology was the, that was going with it because they dragged the whole Christian church in Germany into this. Things did not become easy easier for Bonhoeffer as Hitler gained power. He resisted Nazi sentiment as peacefully and theologically as he could. Through his work in an illegal seminary, through his sermons and his books. In 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote his most famous book. This is The Cost of Discipleship. And these are his words now Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought and sought again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It is important to recognize that this was written during a time when much of the Christian church in Germany had all but sold its soul to Adolf Hitler. For Bonhoeffer, cheap grace was German Christianity's dangerous reality. With the annexation of Austria, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, and Kristallnacht, Bonhoeffer became more agitated. He identified as a pacifist um, for a good portion of his adult life, but things began to change in his mind as he realized that that peaceful demonstration was not going to do anything to stop uh, the Nazis. In 1938, he became involved in conspiratorial activities along with his brother-in-law, Hans von Danani, who was a member of the German intelligence, the Opfer. He also helped Jews to actively escape Nazi oppression. He got them into Switzerland, uh, including his twin Sabine and her Jewish husband and their children. In 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was drafted into the German army. Knowing the extent of the barbarity against the Jews that was already underway, because he had Hans von Danani was, was in the German intelligence, and he would feed Bonhoeffer information, um, trying to persuade him to join uh, the resistance. And so Bonhoeffer had seen the pictures. He knew what was going on. Um, and he, he, he couldn't support Nazi rule. He could not serve in the military. Instead, he arranged to teach theology in America. This was kind of a backup plan in case he would be drafted. So he got all, all of everything approved, went to America. He was going to teach at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And he got there, and it was suddenly like, oh, my goodness, I, he couldn't stay there. He was so restless. He was agitated. Uh, he wrote a letter to a friend, and he said, um, I've come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. It wasn't that he wanted to go back and fight in the army. He wanted to go back and fight the ideology. He wanted to be part of 
resisting um, this, you know, the, the insidious way in which Nazism was just creeping into every aspect of German life. After just 26 days in New York, Bonhoeffer got on a ship and went back to Germany. And he did so knowing that he could very well lose his life. Jeremiah also hated war. Um, these paintings I found online, I had way too much fun. <laughs> I love artwork, um, especially classical stuff, and so you'll see the artist name up in the top. But these are just, you know, when you have the pathos of somebody like Jeremiah, it's very inspirational to, to artists and people who want to demonstrate the, the sorrow. You see here, this is Jeremiah against the ruins of Jerusalem. Just such a sad, sad painting. Jeremiah hated war. In Jeremiah 4.19, the prophet says, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Young, sensitive, and distraught over the condition of Jerusalem, Jeremiah preached and prophesied for some 30 to 40 years during the reign of five kings, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. The apostasy of Judah is chronicled very matter-of-factly in the last chapters of 2 Kings 23, 24, and 25. But Jeremiah is, is not matter-of-fact. Jeremiah is dramatic. He's raging. He's weeping. He's desperate. Like Bonhoeffer, but in a, in a much greater sense because he really is called to be a prophet, Jeremiah was called to remain with his people and suffer with them through the moral decline of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the subsequent ex- exile. His prophetic role was to proclaim the word of God amid a society that was a moral sewer. Like Bonhoeffer, he warned against cheap grace, but in in his own words, uh, Jeremiah said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The problems of Judah are outlined in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, in which Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord at the gate of the temple, urging the people to repent. Judah was plagued with injustice, with oppression against the sojourner and the fatherless, the shedding of innocent blood, and idolatry. If they repented of these things, God would forgive them. But if they didn't, then all of the promises that were given to David about somebody being on the throne forever, uh, the promise given to Abraham about a a land for his descendants, every single one of these promises was based on covenant faithfulness. And if the Israelites were not faithful to God, God would be faithful to them, but at some point the rejection was too far, uh, and those promises would be nullified. Judah was in the dangerous position of believing that holding on to the appearance of faith through performing sacrifices and going to the temple and looking holy would afford them the same benefits as actually having faith. They promoted and accepted cheap grace as opposed to the costly grace that required change and repentance. So how did Jeremiah survive in this environment? How did he minister to Judah for so many decades and yet remain faithful? How did he not lose hope? The first chapter of Jeremiah gives us a clue as to how we, as Christians, can respond to a world that is in a steady moral decline, while accepting the prophetic responsibility of urging repentance and change. We need to turn with me now to chapter 1 of of Jeremiah. We're going to look um, a little bit at the whole chapter, but but mostly the the latter half. But turn with me to Jeremiah. When When you get there, say amen. Amen. Okay, good. The book of Jeremiah begins with a call narrative. If you look um, in verses 4 to 10, uh, verse 4 it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, um, and these are the words, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
This is a very uh, common literary formula that you find in the calling of prophets. If you look at other prophetic books, you'll usually see, see you know, God um, giving some kind of a call. We see it also with Ezekiel um, and, and Moses. And Moses responds very similarly to the way that Jeremiah does. Uh, Jeremiah is not so sure about this call. You know, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You know, before I formed you in the womb, I... Uh, I knew you before you were born. I consecrated you. We say this at baby dedications, you know, but this is a very serious call. And, and Jeremiah says, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this. I don't know how to speak. If you remember when God called Moses, Moses said the same thing. He said, I can't speak. Um, and God says to, to Jeremiah, he says, do not say I am only a youth. You can't complain and say that I can't call you just because you're young. I can call anybody at any time, and I can use anyone. Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then God touches Jeremiah's mouth, and he puts words in, and he says, See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. It's a very strange task. When I, you know, when you first read Jeremiah 1 and you think, oh man, I wish God would say something like that to me. I wish God would call me that way. Well, stop and think a minute before you say that because this is, you know, how would you like to go and uh, be called to, to be set up over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down? I mean, this is a very serious task. Ellen White in Prophets and Kings says, thank God for the words to build and to plant. There is hope and there is the promise of restoration after punishment. In the two visions and the explanation that follows, God illustrates what he means by setting Jeremiah as a divine agent over nations and over kingdoms. The city of Jerusalem will be attacked, God tells Jeremiah. All the tribes of the kingdoms of the north will set up camp around Jerusalem against all its walls. This is verse 15. Against all the cities of Judah. God himself will declare judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. If you look in verses 15 and 16, just this, this little paragraph here, you see the word against over and over again. God against Judah. The nations against Judah. It is clear that Judah will not last long. But what about Jeremiah? If Jerusalem is not safe, how can an individual be safe? I can't help feeling that this in some ways resonates with the way things are right now. There's recent incidents in Nigeria, in Syria, in England, France, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Parkland. No nation is safe. No city is safe. No school is safe. How can the individual find protection? God continues, But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the peoples of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. A fortified city. Jeremiah is more impenetrable than Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem will be besieged, broken down, torn apart, gutted, but Jeremiah will stand. 
Jerusalem, a city with walls and towers, will be unable to do anything against the onslaught of the army that is to come. Rejecting God, they have rejected the presence that could protect them. But Jeremiah, though he is just one individual, will stand against the kings of Judah, officials, priests, and people of the land. Even though they fight against him, he will prevail against them. There it is again. You see that word, against. The key for Jeremiah comes at the end of verse 19. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Notice that this is an echo of 1 verse 8 in the, in the original part of the call. The message is clear. Do not be afraid. Whatever you have to say, whatever resistance you may meet, I am here. Upon his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer became a more active member of the German resistance. He acted as a courier for the German resistance and used his work in the ecumenical movement as a cover. He had to travel as a pastor all across um, Europe to attend conferences, to preach. He was not allowed to speak publicly and, and publish at this, at this time. Um, and the Gestapo used to go and arrest him. So, you know, he was, he was getting in trouble with, with the Gestapo. And this work as, with the Opfer gave him some protection and enabled him to move in ways that he wouldn't otherwise. But it also was a cover for him to be able to give information to the Allies about the German resistance movement. Because the hope was that they could eventually overthrow Hitler um, and then the Allies would help to restore Germany. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the Allies were not very interested. They, they didn't really believe the German resistance, uh, and so they didn't provide a whole lot of help. Um, but the German resistance had problems of its own. Um, he was indirectly involved in a plot to overthrow and assassinate Hitler uh, with, with the hopes of being able to restore some sanity to Germany. He was arrested in 1943 and imprisoned for two years in Tegel Prison. When he was arrested, they did not know the extent to which he was involved. He was never directly involved in um, the plot to assassinate Hitler, but he knew about it. Um, and so, you know, this cost him his life later. In prison, he continued to write and ruminate on what it meant to be a follower of Christ. He really experienced a, kind of an identity crisis while he was in prison, did a lot of writing, um, and developed kind of a, a new theology which has been published since his death. He wrote to his best friend, Eberhard Betke, in 1944, these words. I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, life's problems, successes, and failures. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our suffering, but those of God in the world. That, I think, is faith. When the famous July 20 plot on Hitler's life, also known as Operation Valkyrie, failed, Bonhoeffer was among those implicated. There was actually a film made about it called Valkyrie, and they don't mention Bonhoeffer, but um, Bonhoeffer was one of the people who was part of the windfall of, of that whole thing. Uh, I'm trying to remember that Canaris, Admiral Canaris, was the head of the German intelligence. This was, it was a huge plot. I mean, they were trying to basically tie up part of the army and declare that Hitler was dead, and, but the bomb that went off in the bunker... Um, it was next to a big table, and, and the table um, took most of the force of the blast. And as a result, bon, uh, Hitler uh, didn't die. So it's, it's incredible to think, you know, there were so many attempts on Hitler's life. He just had this un unbelievable kind of luck. Um, 
Anyway, Bonhoeffer was eventually transferred to Flossenburg. They, they found uh, files, a dossier that, that included Bonhoeffer's name. And originally, his family was thinking that he would, he would be released because they didn't have any hard evidence on him. But now his name was included in this dossier, and that was the end of it. Um, Hitler was, was out to get him. And um, they wanted to make sure, even though the war was really winding down, um, you know, the Allies were moving into Germany. They knew that the war was going to be lost to the Allies at this point, but they wanted to make sure that they made an example of all of these resistors. So just one month before Germany surrendered, he was hanged along with six other resistors at the age of 39. Um, and one of the camp doctors who was there when he died said that he has never seen a man go to his death more peacefully. He, he knelt down right before they asked him to strip, and um, he prayed, and then he went up to the gallows and he prayed again. And, and he said he just was unbelievable how calm, calmly he walked and how convinced he was of the will of God. As you read the book of Jeremiah, you will see that this young prophet has a terrible message to give. It is one of plucking up and breaking down, destroying and overthrowing. But it is also a message of building and planting, a message of restoration. God promises the people of Judah that Jerusalem, if they repent, will be a fortified city again rebuilt and restored to her former glory. But until they repent, Jeremiah will be a fortified city of one. For Jeremiah, it is God's presence that made all the difference between being a fortified city and a broken-down heap of rubble, between standing in the middle of the storm and collapsing against the onslaught of the enemy. Like Bonhoeffer, Jeremiah suffered deeply for his role as a resistor against the culture and theology of his time. He was thrown in a cistern, he was kept in prison, he was finally released by the Babylonians because the Babylonians, his, his fellow Judeans didn't respect him, but the Babylonians did. Um, and they actually, they release him. He's going to go live with Gedaliah. Then Gedaliah is assassinated. And then his fellow Judeans drag him off to Egypt because they're afraid of the Babylonians. And it is very likely that it is in Egypt that he dies. Tradition, Jewish tradition says that he was stoned to death by his fellow Judeans. Being a fortified city did not mean that he would live a peaceful life. Nor did it mean that he would be spared from physical pain. But it meant that God would strengthen him to proclaim a radical message of repentance. We may not live in Nazi Germany or ancient Judah, but there is injustice in this world. Living the law of God as Jeremiah did, living the gospel as Bonhoeffer did, requires us to face the evils of our society head-on, confronting those who oppress the fatherless, the immigrant, the widow, the poor, the weak, and so on. We, too, have been called, as Jeremiah was, to proclaim a message of repentance to the world. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He does not ask us to do it alone. He promises to give us strength and, if necessary, to make us a fortified city of one. What are the concluding words to that great commission? And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Despite the overall sadness of the book of Jeremiah, there is hope. In chapter 31, verses 33 to 34, God says to his people, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Through the sacrifice of Christ, 
who was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate resistor of evil in the world, we have the hope of forgiveness and the promise of heaven. We may be a fortified city, but we are not alone. There is a greater city that awaits us. And between now and then, we can find shelter in God, who is, as Martin Luther once penned, a mighty fortress. I want to end with something that Bonhoeffer wrote while he was in prison. It captures the difficulties of living a life obedient to the cross in the face of hardship, a life as a fortified city of one. These are his words, and this is actually his cell in Tegel Prison. Who am I? Who am I? They often tell me. I come out of my cell calmly, cheerfully, resolutely, like a lord from his palace. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I carried the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one who was used to winning. Am I really, then, what others say of me? Or am I only what I know of myself, restless, melancholic and ill like a caged bird, struggling for breath as if hands clasped my throat, hungry for colors, for flowers, for the song of birds, thirsty for friendly words and human kindness, shaking with anger at fate and at the smallest sickness, trembling for friends at an infinite distance, tired and empty at praying, at thinking, at doing, drained and ready to say goodbye to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and another tomorrow? Am I both at once, in front of others, a hypocrite, and to myself a contemptible, fretting weakling? Or is something still in me like a battered army, running in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? These lonely questions mock me. Whoever I am, you know me. I am yours, O God. Let us stand now and turn in our hymnals to number 506, A Mighty Fortress, this beautiful hymn that was written by Martin. 